0: did the intro last time. I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, anyway, welcome to Let's Unpack That. This is a podcast where we analyze books that we read in middle school. I'm Lydia. I'm Nina. And And for once, I wish you guys
1: could see the setup we have. Let me tell you, it is professional. My goodness. It is clean. The air conditioning is great.
0: Actually, I know for a fact that this is what some actual professional podcasts do. Okay. Is, uh, Record under duets,
1: Yeah. So right now we're under blankets
0: um, yes. in my bedroom. We've got little forts on opposite sides of the room so that we don't <laughs> hopefully don't pick each other up on our microphones. Not too much. And and yet can still hear each other, which is the key, because like, what's yeah. the point of being in the same room if you still have to use Skype to hear each other?
1: Which we considered.
0: Yes, we consider that and we also have a live studio audience yes we got a live studio audience say hi hank wait where'd he go hank oh no hank oh he's on the blankets in the corner okay oh he's in the, okay so we have
1: a live studio audience in the name of hank he is again my roommate's dog i think you remember him from last episode if you don't yeah he, he was, was in was the beginning cool. of last episode yeah um and uh yeah he was very needy and attention driven so we decided to let him in to join us for this podcasting session and I think he's uh, I think he's enjoying himself. Yep. He's kind of wandering back and forth between the forts. Right now he's in the corner, but you know, he'll come in. He'll he'll have some things to say every now and again.
0: Yeah, I think I think he's settled pretty much in the corner for now. But we'll see if he has anything to say. So,
1: speaking of people who have things to say, uh we should definitely do a call-in episode. This is a shout out to my friend Cassidy who is listening in Texas. Um, girl, I'm so ready to hear your opinions. So maybe once uh, we get all of this this episode out of the way, we will work it in to have you call in Cass and kind of talk about it because um, I think that would be kind of cool, especially for our bonus episode doing the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Even if Cassidy hasn't necessarily read the book, um, you know, she is actually... So a little background on my friend Cassidy. She has a master's degree in political communication or something along those lines she always tells me and I always forget but uh this is essentially what she has studied and given that this is a very political book um I think she would be a great asset to the podcast so hopefully Cassidy we will set that up and get that taken care of for you as soon as we can Um, It'll be really great. And also, guys, don't forget, we're going to have a bonus episode coming out um (laughs) soon-ish with the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. So that will be really fun as well. Um, And then also eventually we will do Midnight Sun, Edward's version of Twilight. And then maybe potentially we will pick another book unless anyone else has any suggestions for us.
0: Yeah, if you have any suggestions for what our next book should be, uh, hit us up on Twitter at Let's Unpack Pod or email us at doitforthevamps at gmail.com. And that is our little promo for the beginning of this episode. Uh, but this is the last episode about the hunger games. We're talking about chapter 27 today. Um, can't believe it. And just final thoughts about the book and about the series.
1: I can't believe we've been doing this for two years, by the way. So Lydia, Lydia mentioned right before we started this, that we've been podcasting for two years, which is crazy. Definitely. Uh, Not what I expected when we first started this, but so far I'm loving it. So, And especially now that you're here, it's a lot easier to do and a little bit more fun, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, for goodness sake, we made blanket forts. Um, (laughs) (laughs)
1: Definitely more fun with the blanket forts.
0: Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. It's been a while since our last Hunger Games episode. Um,
1: So we released the one
0: last week,
1: but that was actually recorded in May. June. And so Lydia and I haven't sat down and done a podcast recording since May, which is like, gosh, almost six months ago.
0: Yeah, that's a long time ago.
1: I think it's about, actually, I think it is about six months ago. No, 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 we recorded in June. So it's been about five months. And of course, as we noted last time, a lot of things have changed. <laughs> Who were we in June of 2020? Who no knows? Idea. Nobody knows. But here we go. We both just finished up The Hunger Games. And wow. I don't know. I don't know about you, but for some reason, this chapter hit me a little bit different than the other times and I've read it before uh, and maybe it's because I haven't read it in a long time and the last time I did read it it was really just to read and it wasn't necessarily with the idea that I was going to discuss it afterwards so arguably I probably just skimmed through it and didn't really absorb it as much but uh, that last chapter I I don't know I it, to me I really I really feel like the undertones of that chapter are really highlighting the danger in a way that I didn't necessarily realize and in a way that the last couple minutes of the movie doesn't really hit on either but right. just how much danger and how worried Katniss actually is I actually for some reason I didn't realize that there were two separate sessions with Caesar Flickerman I thought there was just one long session with like the remembering the Hunger Games, like the the special features clips and then the speech right afterwards. But actually, I guess it is broken up into two, mm-hmm. which to me is just like, oh, my gosh, it's interesting. And it's also clever on the ways of the Capitol because it's just further exhausting the tributes at that point or the victors, I should say. It's exhausting the victors. To the point that they still feel like they're being owned, like you know, they can't just go home and and do nothing, but they're still here on this schedule. Which so it, it all just sat a little bit differently with me this last time I read it. What about you?
0: Yeah, me too. I noticed a bunch of stuff that I had forgotten was in the first book, mm-hmm. um, and that I'd kind of assumed before was just in the second book and the third book once it became popular. But I mean, like we've said before, Suzanne did a lot of planning for this series, and mm-hmm. I mean, it should have I should have known that like. She definitely had the whole trilogy planned out when she published the first book. Oh, yeah. Um, So just a quick summary of chapter 27, which is the last chapter, starts with Katniss's first interview after the Hunger Games, and she sees PETA for the first time since his medical treatment. And later, actually, in this chapter, it's revealed that he lost his leg because of the tourniquet, but also that he didn't bleed out because of the tourniquet. So it was her fault that he lost his leg, but also that he survived at all so the book describes the hunger game showreel in a lot of detail um, i didn't remember
1: it being in that much detail
0: yeah and it's three hours long geez and then katniss and peta are crowned the victors but katniss can feel president snow's anger towards mm-hmm. her and she can't stop thinking about how much danger they're in because of the berries uh, her only defense can be that she was hopelessly in love, so she's trying to act like it, and uh, after the interview, she tries to find PETA in the training center to talk to him, but uh, she can't find him, and then she finds that she's locked in. Uh, yeah. The next day is the second, more personal interview with Caesar Fleckerman, who really cuts her some slack and helps her out when she can't think of answers, and then they get back on the train to District 12, and Katniss... Puts on her normal clothes and starts retransforming into her normal self, uh, the one that doesn't have to be a show figure for the Capitol. And at a fuel stop, Katniss tells Peta that they're in danger because of the berries. Mm-hmm. And Peta figures out that her whole love-struck attitude was an act for the cameras, and he's really disappointed. Uh, Katniss is confused because she doesn't know how things will be back in District 12 with Peeta and Gail and how to let them both down easy. Mm-hmm. And the book ends as they hold hands and prepare to get off the train for the cameras in District 12.
1: What I thought was interesting right off the bat about Chapter 27 is that, um, and quoting here directly from the first page of Chapter 27, I hear Caesar Flickerman greeting the audience. Does he know how crucial it is? to get every word right from now on he must he will want to help us to me i wonder and that's end quote i wonder why she thinks that's or where she arrived at that conclusion that caesar flickerman would want to help them i don't know if she means in just a show business kind of way or if she means he knows that they're in danger and he wants them to
0: survive um what was your take on that that's a Good question. One that I hadn't actually considered because, I mean, Caesar Flickerman has got to be under the Capitol scrutiny because he's the most popular figure in the Capitol and the most public figure. And so anything that he says gets distributed to all of the districts. And if he says one wrong thing, he could probably lose his head. Which, yeah. So in a way, he might be used to that. But also he's been interviewing victors for who knows how long Mm -hmm. and I think by now he might have some compassion towards them and some recognition that they're fresh off the trauma train and that anything that, that in order to put on a good show he needs to help them out he needs to bolster their responses and kind of sometimes ask leading questions that will give the most entertaining responses. So it's, it's show business, but also it's politics. And Caesar Flickerman probably knows that and has been involved in it for so long.
1: Right. But does he know that Katniss and PETA would be under intense scrutiny right now? You know, like, does he recognize that their lives are still in danger, despite the fact that they're out of the arena um, and that he everything that he paints from now on will directly affect them? You know, I'm wondering how aware is he of the fact that they are still being hunted or whether or not he even thinks that if he's really just focused on the show and whether or not he's actually invested in PETA and Katniss, because it's one thing for Hamish and the rest of their team to be invested in their well-being, you know, for X, Y and Z reasons. But Caesar Flickerman is a showman. Right. And, you know, and, and like you've said, he's interviewed hundreds of or probably not hundreds, but he's interviewed uh, tens of a couple of victors at this point, you know, and he's done this for a while, at least a couple of years, to my recogn- to my uh, recollection. So, really, how much of a vested interest does he have, compassion wise, for Peeta and Katniss? Which is why I'm wondering where she's getting this idea that she will that he will want to help them. Is this kind of like a desperate, panic stricken thought that she's having? Um, or is there signs that Caesar Flickerman actually has a little bit of, yeah, compassion towards the other tributes, and that's what I'm wondering. You know, does he does he know how evil the Capitol is? He must, but does he know how in danger they must be, given everything that Katniss just did? You know, or is he really just trying to put on a show
0: and help them along to make their story work? I think he knows. He knows how much danger they're in because having watched as many Hunger Games as he has and having interviewed as many victors as he has, he probably sees, like Cinna saw, like President Snow saw, Mm -hmm. that there's something different about these games. Um, I mean, there being two victors is something that's never happened and that the Capitol never wanted to happen. So obviously that's a really bad and dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, he is definitely trying to put on a good show and probably downplay the trauma that they've been through so that it's palatable to yeah. audiences. But also, having interviewed that many victors, he definitely knows that some of them would go on to be trafficked and to be blackmailed and all of that. He There's no way that he doesn't know that, but he's still putting on the show.
1: Are Are we sure that he wouldn't know that, though? Because I'm I'm not totally sold that he's not still doing it just for the sake of the show. I'm not sold that he is just hoping to um, get dramatic responses and not to the point of, you know, of course, he's not going to go in and traumatize the tributes, but he's still at the forefront putting on a show. He is still trying. It's like, I don't know, trying to think of like a drama talk show, you know, like. I'm thinking The View. I guess that's not really that. But, you know, he's still trying to have, like, gasps, gasps from the audience and scandal and, like, a, a good taping of this interview to go off of. Because the more he gets, the more he can work with. So I I don't well, know if we're working off of something that has occurred in the books prior. But to me, I, I'm just not sold that Cesar Flickman has a deeper sense of understanding for what's going on. Um,
0: I want to say that in later books and in the movies, he's more of a figure and exhibits more compassion.
1: Not quite. I think in the.
0: Or am I just projecting that because Stanley Tucci is cool?
1: Maybe. But I, I remember in the third movie, he was still interviewing PETA when PETA was under the Capitol's control, when he was being controlled by the Capitol and really kind of still under their thumb. I don't know if Caesar Flickerman ever really comes off as a good or bad character. I feel like he is morally very gray because we just don't know. I mean, of course, I would love for him to be this great, awesome guy, but not everyone in the Capitol is part of the rebellion and some people genuinely believe in what they're doing. So, you know, until we have that kind of knowledge of Caesar Flickerman, to me, I just don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, there's just no way that he wouldn't know about all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. Maybe he just chooses to ignore it. Maybe. But I think at, at least somewhat it influences the questions that he asks. And mm-hmm. I mean, the leading questions that he asks um, and the questions that he doesn't ask. Um, right. Because like you have to know the whole picture in order to choose which part of the picture to show. Right. So whether he's choosing that part of the picture because it makes a good show Or because he doesn't want the Capitol to totally have control of these children's stories is up in the air, but Mm -hmm. either way, he is complicit. Right.
1: (sighs) Not doubting that, but that, for some reason, that line jumped out to me. I hadn't consciously read it before. Because so I feel like a line like that might have stood out to me. Maybe not. Maybe I'm giving past me too much credit. But to me, that jumped out. And I was like, whoa, where, where is this coming from? Is this something because she's in a panic and searching for anything? Um, or does she gen- genuinely believe that he's there to help and wants to help? I don't know. I think I think we could afford to do a little more looking into Caesar Flickerman.
0: Yeah, and his dad is in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes.
1: He yeah, that's true. Mhm.
0: So maybe we'll see Caesar Flickerman in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I don't know. Yeah. Um I haven't read the whole thing yet.
1: Note that down for our bonus
0: episode. <laughs> I'd love to talk more about that. The Flickerman family. Oh yeah. Yeah. Another so- character that we get a little bit of insight into here is Effie. Yeah, Uh, Because she starts showing signs of not being totally okay with what's going on, Mm -hmm. um, which will later make her part of the rebellion. Uh, But it says here on page 360, as misguided as Effie can be, she has a very keen instinct about certain things and must at least suspect we're in trouble. Um, So she's not just the so-called dumb blonde stereotype that Mm -hmm. Katniss thought she was at the beginning. It yeah. also uh, foreshadows her future role in the trilogy and kind of breaks the mold of mm-hmm. capital people as these superficial, just weird people. Um, right. Right.
1: It's going back into, again, right after, right as they're on, uh, once they're coming on stage, Katniss is again kind of thinking like, oh, Peeta's working it, he's got it, it's great. But he, she still is working to be convincing, right? Like she noticed that, okay, If Hamish hadn't warned me in time, would I have acted any differently? Would I have flaunted the moment with the berries in the Capitol's face? No, I don't think so. But I could easily have been a lot less convincing than I need to be right now. Just again, kind of going to the idea that, oh, she is definitely, or she thinks that she is still acting, right? She's still kind of pushing away her feelings, but she's also like, okay, I have to be a certain way. I have to be as calculating as I can um, to figure this out. And it, just, it drives it home again that like how, how much PETA is not acting because we find out that he actually had no idea that they were in any danger at all. He thought yeah. everything was fine until they got to the fuel stop. So this is, again, just highlighting how much Katniss really thinks about everything that she does when she's in front of the cameras and when she's in front of the Capitol and how much of her, I almost want to say, hunter mentality has followed her to the front of the cameras because when you're off by yourself, you think about everything that you're doing and everything that you've done um, to try to survive. And she's still in that survival mode.
0: Yeah. She is still in survival mode. Also, this is kind of a reversal of the beginning when Hamish coached PETA. Right. Now he's coaching Katniss. hmm Like at the beginning, Hamish was coaching PETA to be like, okay, this is when you pop the reveal that you're in love with her. And all that. And here it's like, all right, you got to act as though you're still in love.
1: Yeah, he had kind of written off Katniss up until the point that PETA said, oh, I'm in love with her um, and 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 kind of just washed her, washed his hands of her and said, like, you're I can't do like you're fine. I can't do this, whatever. And was kind of just going to let her go. Um until PETA came back in and, and roped her back into this. So now now he's saying, no, your survival depends on you, Katniss. So she, he is putting the responsibility solely on Katniss when before he wasn't giving her that responsibility at all. Right. At before it was initially. on
0: PETA, it was like make her seem nice and charming and make her seem likable. That was all on PETA. And now it's all on Katniss to make it seem like they're in love and that her rebellion was because of love. And like, at first he had to handle Katniss's image. Now she has to handle both of their images. Right. Yikes. Gosh, and three hours of replays. <laughs> three hours. You know what that remind me of, though? What? A movie. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like I've mentioned before that how ironic it is that this book got made into a movie, but because the whole point of it is you shouldn't like seeing children die. And that the movie itself, focused
1: more on the love triangles than the actual themes of the books. Yeah, yeah
0: the love triangle it focused on the love triangle, it focused on the kids dying, uh like up close. <laughs> it made the capital seem cool and it just this description here of the 3-hour showreel. Let me read it to you. It's kind of similar to what the actual movie ended up being.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um Suzanne called it Quote, the first half hour or so focuses on the pre-arena events, the reaping, the chariot ride through the Capitol, our training scores and our interviews. And it goes on with like how people are fighting and like the places where it cuts to what Katniss is doing and what PETA is doing. And it doesn't show her putting flowers on Rue's body, but it does show Rue dying in gruesome detail. And it shows Cato dying in gruesome detail. And it just struck me like, who read this and said, Let's do that exactly. Let's do that exactly. This is a recipe. The screenplay writes itself.
1: Lord have mercy. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and now that you're saying that, it's like, oh, my God, because it, it really is just sitting there, like, rewatching it, and it's it's the only entertainment that they really get.
0: I say entertainment loosely. Do you remember how, when the movie came out, everybody was complaining, like, the first half is just, they're not even in the Hunger Games. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure I was one of those people, too, and I might have said that about the book in one of our earlier episodes. Like, the first half is just not the Hunger Games, but that's kind of like this. It's like the first half hour is just other stuff He's setting it up is setting it up like it takes its time setting the half hour is not a short amount of time
1: arguably the setup is what's most important of this of this whole book because right. it's it's setting the stage you know it's showing the reader what the composition of the capital is and and how this whole world works
0: right so that first half is really necessary in the book but but
1: um, because it's not entertainment, because it's not necessarily something that's action packed and filled with whatever, uh, people tend to write it off you right. know, or complain that it's going on for too long or maybe even just, you know, ignore the first half while they're going through.
0: Yeah, like just get to the action.
1: Can I add a lighter note? Yeah. It made me laugh a little bit after she says, I do notice that they omit the part where I covered her in flowers. And then she goes, right, because even that smacks of rebellion. And I was like, is that where that came from? That smacks? <laughs> <Like, laughs> I was reading it and I, I just started laughing. I'm like, oh, the lingo of the children. There it is.
0: Well, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's actually slaps. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's like it in the book, it says that smacks of rebellion. But the kids these days say, oh, yeah, that slaps.
1: Okay. Well, then that's how out of touch I am. <laughs> With the children today, I was I I was riding my horse today. And as I was leaving, there was another woman in there with her student. And she was kind of talking about how as you advance as a horseback rider, you start to become more aware of your body. And she said something along the lines of like, you don't really know now when you're 17. But when you're 40 or 50, you start to feel a lot more. And then I cut in and said, or when you're 24. (laughs) I was like, let me tell you, I feel a long way from 17. Yikes. Yikes.
0: And that's today's yikes moment, feeling older than you are.
1: I like how she notes earlier or later on that the the filmmakers cut the moment from the berries and and then immediately cut to her pounding on the glass door of the hovercraft screaming PETA's name as they try to revive him, the health team. Part of me wonders how much of that is trying to make a good film and then how much of that is maybe what we should try and make this look a little bit better than it actually was. But I I appreciated the moment where she says, in terms of survival, it's my best moment all night. Um, That really drives home the fact that she knows that this is what's going to save her butt, is her reacting like that in the hovercraft. But I think that also just shows how much she lacks self-awareness, because in that moment, she didn't know she was being recorded. She didn't know that there were still cameras trained on her. She didn't know that any of this would be seen by anybody, but she was still going berserk after PETA. And I think that could really tell her something if she thought about it for a minute, how she actually feels about PETA and realizing that she doesn't have to work so hard to be convincing, that she could just let herself feel um, and feel compassion and feel any kind of genuine love for this boy. It's it's interesting because her, her best moment of the night is when she was acting completely natural. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it makes me want to reach through and shake her and be like, just let yourself feel I understand why she doesn't. I totally do. But at the same time, like this moment, this is what saves your butt. And guess what? That was the only genuine moment that you've had since you joined up with PETA however many days ago in the arena.
0: Right. I think of it like she's only in danger because the capital is in danger. Right. She's only being threatened because the capital feels threatened. And so, of course, they're trying to support her story mm-hmm. because, like. It's kind of like a plot, like, well, if we all tell this story... If
1: we don't make it seem like it's rebellion, but actually they just loved each other a lot.
0: Yeah, if we all act like this is what happened, if we all agree on this story, then it won't cause anything. Let's all try to save our
1: own skins.
0: Yeah, let's let's all try to save the capital, because that's what it is. It's like, if you don't help us save the capital from potential rebellion, we're going to kill you. Right. Like, she's not... Like, th- this action does not directly threaten her. It only threatens her because it threatens the capital.
1: Yeah, but it's also interesting thinking about how, I don't know, Katniss's safety depends on the safety of the capital. It's almost like a backwards alliance between her and the capital as a institution.
0: Well, it's blackmail. That's what it is. I mean, yes. But, yeah, it is for the purpose of... Upholding the institution. Freaky stuff. Yep, creepy stuff. Want to know something else creepy? What? Uh, there's foreshadowing for a Ballant of Songbirds and Snakes in here. What? Where? Page three sixty four. His eyes, President Snow's, just inches from mine, are as unforgiving as a snake's. Oh no. That's where the title comes from, folks. You heard it here. Spoiler alert. Uh, President Snow is the snake. Somebody else is the songbird. And it's all very literal. Wow. I Yeah. Wow. But yeah, that's, that's where the image of him as a snake originates, I think. Dang. And we'll talk more about that in our bonus episode.
1: Oh, man. I don't really even know a good way to conclude talking about this because it's so oddly paralleled to kind of what we've been going through just here in the United States. And also just the fact that this is so clearly not the end of this story. It's hard to... Sp- Speak of it in a conclusive way, you know, like it just feels like there's so much to unpack here. and there's so much that we could be pulling into and relating back to the United States that I just I don't really even know where to begin because i I just don't know do you do you, do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. and I think we'll be able to talk about that more in our bonus episode when we talk about, yeah. President Snow and how he became who he became hmm. Because I mean, I've I've said in previous episodes, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is not the book that I thought it was going to be. Um, and it does not create the political parallels that I thought would be apt in this day and age. It really
1: feels like kind of just going back and thinking about all the work that Suzanne Collins obviously did for these books, and just seeing how much we can pull from it. It almost feels like she really didn't try that hard. With Ballad of Songbirds and Stakes. And sorry, we don't have to talk about this much more because we are going to talk about it in the promo episode. But it almost feels like it would be easier to talk about Ballad of Songbirds and Stakes than it would be for this last chapter. Because there's so much more in this last chapter than felt in the entirety of that other book. Yeah,
0: it feels like we got more implied about the politics, about the Hunger Games, about the purpose of the games, about President Snow, who he is and, well, almost... Who he has to be right. in order to make this whole thing work, this whole system work, we get more of that in this chapter when we see him put the crown on Katniss's head than we do, I think, in the first few chapters of, Ballads of *Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes*. And that is an, absolutely a dig at *Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes*. Suzanne, who ghost wrote that? <laughs> Tell me. Oh no. Um, I, I'm sorry. It just doesn't feel like the same author. But we can talk about that later. Yeah.
1: And what what else is interesting is that Katniss never talks about previous presidents of Panem. Right? right. Like, it almost feels like this is more of, I don't want to say a monarchy, but it feels like President Snow is the capital, and the capital is President Snow, and there was no before and there will be no after. You know, like, it just seems like... There, there's just no mention of any of the people who came before him. Right. We don't know if it was all men, if there were women in charge, what it looks like, because he's really painted as the beginning and the end of the Capitol, which for Katniss he absolutely is because he's been in power as long as she's been alive. But right. you would think in school that they would learn about the different presidents of Panama and kind of talk about how this all
0: began. Well, thinking about it, he's been in power at least 50 years at this point. Right. Which is probably, I mean, how old is the oldest person in the scene? Probably not much older than 50. So maybe that just isn't in the cultural memory.
1: It really could not. It could be because, um, you know, as we'll see, the mandatory viewings and everything else, that all had to come from somewhere, right? So there, you would presume that there was a time before the mandatory viewings, before everything kind of came together seamlessly and made it into the gigantic, cultural phenomenon it is now the the required watching that it is now that it just doesn't seem like anyone knows anything about before then yeah it almost as if the capital has done that intentionally like oh no it has always been us Mm -hmm. even though at the same time they are using the hunger games to say no we remember that there was a time before us but don't think that we can go back there it's it's all so complicated it's like a big sticky gumball
0: yeah, it's it's major paradox that they've created. It's like, well, remember back when, but also no mention of who was president then. Because Snow wasn't president during the war. We don't know who was. And I don't think we ever learn about that person's name. Right, exactly. And yet this before time is such a rigid concept in the whole cultural memory of Panem. Speaking of cult- cultural memory, I want to talk about the internet. Okay. Because Hunger Games was written right when the internet was kind of coming into our schools. And I mean, the first smartphones were coming out, but it wasn't yet known how much social media would affect youth culture. And Right. Um, I mean, we went from MySpace and Facebook to Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok. And that is a long way to go in 10 years. Yes. Um, And how much it has changed society in those 10 years. But it also made me think of public image and how bad Katniss is at creating her own public image. Yeah. And that got me to thinking, what happened to the internet in Pan Am? Wow. So nowadays we're really used to the concept of personal branding and personal mm-hmm. pr because of social media right. um, we know that once you have a public image there's no going back from that um, something goes viral and it's permanently the way people view you i mean think of the number of people on tiktok who were children for vine and now they're like teenagers and they're coming back being like yeah this was me like the <laughs> look at all that- those chickens girl <laughs> Like, she's on TikTok, and she will always be the look at all those chickens girl.
1: I'm just thinking of that one girl that posted the video about her working at the jewelry store and switching the bags for some guy who came in to buy jewelry for his girlfriend and his wife. And she goes, I must have mixed up the bags. Oops. And just, like, her, just the iconic moment of that. Yeah, and
0: the most viewed TikTok Mm -hmm is who you are. And Katniss is not at all familiar with that type of
1: PR. And not to mention the wealth of information that's available. You see it outside of social media too. Even, I mean, mean, anything really gets spread around social media because that's where people share things. That's where conspiracies start. Um, You know, there's a couple of magazines that I follow, equestrian magazines, of course. Um, But they post their articles, when they publish them, they post them simultaneously on their page and on like Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And the comments you just see, there's always hundreds of them afterwards and everyone has a different opinion. But, you know, at the end of the day, that information is out there, that image is created and it's being spread around so rapidly. And I, I wonder how Suzanne Collins would have changed if she would have changed. And if she if she did, how would she have changed? The Hunger Games as a series, knowing what she knows now, because I feel like that's a great point in saying, you know, what happened to the Internet? What happened to the social images? Is there a way to truly destroy that technology so that no one else has access to it anymore? I mean, you always could, I guess. But it's such a it's such a presence in our lives now that not having that connectivity is a is an odd concept.
0: Right. We can't imagine life without it. And potentially, it could have been a District 13 thing to maintain all the servers. Yeah, And that could have just been lost in the war. So it could be as recently as 74 years ago that the internet went down in the Hunger Games. But on the train, Katniss says, I begin transforming back into myself, Katniss Everdeen, a girl who lives in the seam, hunts in the woods, trades in the hob. I stare in the mirror as I try to remember who I am and who I am not. By the time I join the others, the pressure of Pita's arms around my shoulder feels alien. That's page 370. She still assumes that she can go back.
1: Yeah, that's a, <laughs> which, that's a moment of like, really, Katniss? Like, even, you know, you already know that you're going to be living in the Victor's village and going into the hob. It... Maybe it's a
0: hopeful pipe dream for her that she's right. thinking of
1: this, but dang, come on, girl, have some foresight, really.
0: Right. She's she's definitely struggling to accept that her life will be different now. Right. And that being a victor affords her certain privileges and certain dangers. We'll, we'll also talk about this in Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because I think it's really interesting how media plays into that. The Hunger Games was no doubt not supposed to be a book about the internet. Um, If you want a good book about the internet, go read An Absolutely Remarkable Thing by Hank Green. Please. Um, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, the sequel. Those are about the internet. This is not about the internet, but it can be about the internet because what do we do if one day we all suddenly lose it and we all just can't connect with each other in that way anymore? Um, Our generation is what's called digital natives. Mm -hmm. Uh, We grew up with the internet, we grew up with computers in the classroom, and we learned to use those computers in school. And so we had sort of that institutional built-in knowledge that taught us how to navigate these new technologies. We also accepted the technology before our brains had fully developed. So we were more malleable. We were more apt to learning new things. We were more adaptable. Older generations are called digital immigrants. By the way, I learned all of this in my library classes. Hi, a library school. Um, <laughs> but they're called digital immigrants because they didn't learn how to use the computer in school. Right. They had to learn it outside of institutions and once they were adults for the most part. Okay. But what happens when the internet goes away... And we all become digital exiles. Who would we be as a society, like, generationally, both the digital natives and the digital immigrants, if one day we just found ourselves without it and it didn't come back? Katniss, in a way, lives in an age of digital exile. She doesn't, for that reason, know how to curate a public image. She would be a digital immigrant if they did give her the internet. Right. But... She also didn't grow up with it.
1: That is a concept that worries me greatly because I've actually had that thought before. Like, what happens if we lose the Internet? What happens if we lose all of this technology and this capability? Our entire, like, my entire job is built on a digital platform. And, like, most of what the people I work with work on is technology and the Internet and computers. And it's all digital. It's all virtual so much of our world is dependent on it. Like I don't know how that would how that would play out because I I don't see I don't see anybody handling it well. First right. of
0: all, I mean the internet <laughs> in our house was out for like two days and it was spotty and we all went berserk. I wouldn't say we went well, berserk. Like, we were. I was I was concerned. going a little stir crazy and uh, the rest of you couldn't work. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't work,
1: and it, that makes me think. Like the other day, I actually. It's a good point. The other day I was at the dentist office and I was just on my phone waiting for the dentist to come in and like start the cleaning and whatever. I remembered how when I was younger, I used to always bring a book with me everywhere Mm -hmm. before I had a smartphone. I'd always have a book. And then I just, I always get into this idea of like, what did people do before they had a smartphone or a book or newspaper? And it just, just kind of keeps stepping backwards until we get to the point where they didn't have time to have those extra things. You know, it it, it sends me back to the time of like, okay, when everyone had to work for their food and everyone had to do this. It's a concept I think about and I play around with in my mind a lot, but I don't really know how to verbalize because it just, it's this never ending train of thought of like, how far back do we have to go to really like remember what it's like not to have the internet? Really, it's not that far, but it feels far. And then it always makes me laugh, too, about how boomers are always like, you guys are all on your phones and you never talk to one another. But then if you look at pictures of, like, trains and people on trains back in, like, the 1900s, and they all have, like, newspapers. Yeah, nobody was talking to each
0: other back then either.
1: No one was talking to each other back then, I promise. Like, cafes. No, I used to bring a book to the dinner table all the time. (laughs) Are you kidding me, talking to my parents? No. So, like, just... No, we've always been good at social avoidance, except for now. Did any of that make any sense?
0: Yeah, it's kind of like how like that whole meme of like if you give a Victorian urchin a Dorito, they'll immediately just die from overstimulation. And how how much more stimulated we are nowadays than people might have expected to be in the past. Like I'm reading a book set in the Regency and I'm like, what did you folks do all day? Yeah. What did you do? And it's because, I mean, it was was okay to have less stimulus back then because they were used to it. Now we're used to every five seconds refreshing and having something new to turn on the little chemical in our brains that makes us feel good.
1: And I think our generation especially was brought up in the age of you always have to be doing more than you're expected to do to succeed. Yes. Like you always have to be going above and beyond. If this test requires three hours of studying, you need to study for five hours. You know, if you're going to be working full time, that full time better be 50 hours a week. Like we're we've been brought up on this idea to not have any free time because suddenly free time is seen is as wasted a as is what? wasted time is wasted. Yeah. Free time is seen as wasted time. And it's seen as like, oh, if you have too much free time on your hands, you're obviously not working hard enough. And then meanwhile, the rest of us are like, wow, what I would give for an hour to just not do something.
0: Yeah, Um, we live in an age where productivity is so touted up and so holy because capitalism is so holy um, Mm -hmm. that spending... A little bit of time on yourself or even daring to want to spend time just doing what you love is a strange thing because like, well, shouldn't you be working? Shouldn't you be turning your fun hobbies into something that will make money? Um, Because money is the only measure of worth. We've lost that ability to measure worth by quality of time rather than productivity. And what do we do? If that all goes away, if all of a sudden people can't do their jobs and have to twiddle their thumbs and like it would be like if if the power went out on a massive scale or even if the Internet went out in just a city, there would be mass chaos like the power went out for us last night. I'll bet the power company got at least like a thousand calls about it. Even though it was late at night.
1: Yeah, it was like 10 o'clock at night. The power went out and we looked outside and all the neighborhood was dark and it was kind of like, okay. But then, you know what else we did is we instantly jumped on our phones to figure out what was going on. Right,
0: And we still had Internet access through data. Right. Even though we lost Wi-Fi and sadly, I got kicked out of the Minecraft server. No. But here's, here's my point with all this ranting about the Internet is that it makes sense to us that Katniss can't go back to who she was before the Hunger Games. Um, And it makes sense to us from a perspective of knowing public image, public profiles, and also kind of from a psychological perspective because she's been through a major trauma. But Katniss can't accept that she can't go back. And In a way, we can see the character arc that she's taken, but she can't see it for herself.
1: Right. She fights so hard to not change at all. Yeah. Which I don't think anyone necessarily loves change, but to me, she's a character. She's interesting because she seems so sure in herself that she's not going to change. And it's, it's paradoxical, kind of like you said before. It's like, you can't go through this experience and not be changed. It just doesn't work. And... Her inability to recognize that I think also emphasizes how young she is, but also emphasizes how little she knows of the world and of the human mind and how much has been kept from her in terms of education, in terms of just being able to reconcile with your own sense of being.
0: Yeah. It also has echoes of that conversation with PETA on the roof, how he didn't want them to change him. And in a way, this is still Katniss resisting the Capitol. She doesn't want them to have changed her. And eventually she's going to have to admit that the experience has changed her, whether she likes it or not. Yeah. Well, that's all the thoughts I have on chapter twenty-seven. Do you have any more?
1: I do have one thing I want to add. Okay. When they're at the fuel stop and she kind and PETA kind of realizes the last few days in the arena, um, and you know, the last few days that we were back in the Capitol. Um, It was all for the games, how you acted. And she says, not all of it. And then he starts asking like, how much? No, forget it. I guess the real question is what's going to be left when we get home. And then she goes on to say, I want to tell him he's not being fair, that we were strangers, that I did what it took to stay alive to keep us both alive in the arena. Just how, uh, part of me wants to just shake Peta and be like, dude, she saved your life. Like you need to fucking be grateful. And like, maybe part of it was acting. But like, don't, you know, immediately after this conversation, he starts really kind of shutting her off and just being very distant to her. And to me, I'm like, you're acting like such a teenage boy right now because you've been hurt by this and you're just completely shutting down, even though, hello, she just saved your ass, pal. But then and like, but then the other side of me tries to really like reason and be like, oh, no, he's heartbroken. He really believed that she loved him. He just had his heart broken, blah, blah, blah. But for the most part, it's like, you don't have time for this, PETA. Like, you don't you don't have this luxury of being hurt right now. And you're not being fair because you were strangers. You never spoke to her in the 11 years that you had been in love with her. What are they, 16 now? So ever since he was five, 11 years? Yeah. And, like, you can't. To me, I this is kind of what underlines what I don't like about PETA because he's acting like such a child here. And he's like, oh, I don't care that we're in danger. She doesn't love me. So I'm just going to mope about it. And it's like, obviously, we've all had our hearts broken. We've all been through pain. It's I get it. But you just don't have that luxury
0: right now
1: because it's just not you just don't. You know, you're still in the games in a way, you know, and you're still trying to make make it through the day. So reading that and, and especially that emphasis where she puts that we were strangers and she did what she did to stay alive and to keep them both alive, um, it really made me mad because I, I completely agree with her. And I think, God, you know, this is not something that you have time for. You just don't.
0: Yeah, it also is really unfair because – Not only did she just save his ass, his literal life, Mm -hmm. but the first thing he does is start expecting things from her and start expecting love from her when they've both been through some intense stuff and they both probably need to work that out on their own before they can get together. Yeah. And she could have just as easily said, I don't want anything to do with you because you remind me of a traumatic time. Right. And you bringing up those 11 years, it's like... You have nothing to complain about if for 11 years you did nothing and then she saved your life and you think you deserve her love forever. Like,
1: yeah, like like, oh, oh God, (laughs) it's like it's like, dude. Like read the room. First of all, clearly feminism has taken a big step backwards because you don't get to expect anything from your partner,
0: first of all. And second of all, it's like just Well, they yeah, aren't even partners. Why? He doesn't expect you don't he doesn't get to expect anything from her, period. They're they're strangers. Yeah. Outside of the arena, they are strangers. Really,
1: the realistic thing would be to take a step back, start to get to know each other, go on walks, you know, Jane Austen yeah. style. And talk in the gardens. I don't know. Start start slow. Okay, let's start over. This was a.
0: Because really, really, what do they have in common outside of,
1: I think it's what is referred to as a trauma bond, Mm -hmm. where it's like latching on to somebody or something after experiencing something together and manipulating that and capitalizing on it. Um, And I'm not saying that he's doing this deliberately, but he is definitely milking the idea of this trauma bond, linking them together. And thinking this is the be all end all, and it's just not healthy, and it's not right, and that's not how a good relationship is formed. Right. And I, I think my big conclusion at the end of this is that I really don't like Peta. I kept on waiting for my opinion to change while I was reading this, um, because I, it's not that I didn't mind him before. It's not that I disliked him before. He just never really stood out as a. Substantial character for me to really have any opinions on. But I think my concluding feeling is that I don't like him. He's immature. He doesn't think well. He pant- it, like it, it, he just irks me in a way that he... I, I can actively say that I dislike him, whereas I couldn't say
0: that before. Yeah. In a way, he's really happy that they got to skip the, founda- the foundational bits of a relationship. Right. Like, and he's using the Hunger Games, as a placeholder for a foundation of a relationship.
1: And probably because he's been imagining their relationship for 11 years. Right. So, so in, he his has mind, this foundation built in his mind, they're already past head. all of this foundational stuff. But he doesn't realize that she hasn't there yet. Like, dude, you've been fantasizing about this girl ever since you were a kid. And you've thought out all you've probably thought out all of these scenarios and thought out all these conversations and had all these just like images in your mind of her but you don't actually know her and she doesn't know you and you can't just jump past this and suddenly think we're together and we're in love we're gonna do it yes you guys shared a a, like a traumatic experience together and that brings you together and that brings you close but that is not that doesn't mean you get to negate anything else
0: right that doesn't mean you get to to stay where the trauma brought you together it means you have to work through it and actually take a step back before you can get to that point again. Right. Like, I, to me, he's assuming that because they slept together in the cave, like, not, not actually slept together, but, like, because, because they, were they made out in the, the cave, cave. Because
1: they took care of each other. And
0: took care of each other, that they're bonded for life and that it's going to stay that way. When Katniss is like, no, I need to take a step back. This is not, like, this was too fast.
1: Which is a normal human response.
0: Right. And he's like, well, he's already there, like you said, because he's been there in his head for 11 years. Hashtag problematic PETA. Oh, God. PETA, don't do it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And anyone who is sitting there and like, I don't know, just just take heed. Let people take a step back when they need to. Let the foundation grow. Just just don't do it for them. For the love of God. And also, tell somebody when you like them, maybe, perhaps, potentially.
0: Yeah, don't, uh, don't wait. Don't
1: spend 11 years 11 <laughs> thinking years. about them. Oh, my Jeez. God. <laughs> they have been through this traumatic experience together, and they have changed, but they are still 16 years old. They are going to change more. You know, they are going to change past the time that they are now. And this, you know, assuming that, let's let's say in a perfect Hunger Games world. They go on, they live as victors. There are another 100 years of of Hunger Games behind them. Like this was obviously going to color a significant part of their adulthood, but this isn't going to be their final stopping point. So they are going to change a lot past this time, and you know, there's all the possibility that even with that shared trauma, that they grow apart anyway.
0: Right, which is what, part of why I hated the whole premise in the second book of, yeah, they're 17, they just got married, and now Katniss is pregnant. Right, because it's like, man, they're 17. Stop, man.
1: And I thought I knew everything when I was 17, and I knew exactly who I wanted to be, and I am so different Me too. And, like, it's like fuck, no, Christ, you know, <laughs>
0: like guys. Take a step back, rebuild it from the ground up. E. Something that, if you're done...
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. uh, Well, something that I didn't realize was set up in this book was the love triangle. Really? Yeah. I didn't remember it being set up in this book, but it is. Yeah. Katniss even says, like, she doesn't know how to let PETA down. She doesn't know how to let Gail down. And she says, I can't explain how things are with Gail because I don't know myself. Suggesting that maybe she is a little bit in love with Gail.
1: Uh, Because they've had time to build a foundation. Right, because Because they've spent so much time together. For years, not saying that that foundation is forever. But at this point, they've actually taken the steps to get to know each other outside of trauma.
0: She has a stronger relationship with Gail than she does with PETA. Yeah. And now she's confused about, like... Well, in a way, I think she knows that she's going to have to choose between them. Oh, yeah. Because she says, well, I have to tell them both that I'm never going to get married and have kids.
1: Yeah, and she she doesn't think that she's capable of doing that. Right. They're all children.
0: <laughs> They're all no, children. I mean, but also, like, she's just been so hurt by everything. I mean, yeah. why would you have a kid and subject them to the reaping and potentially the Hunger Games when you've been through it yourself.
1: Jumping back to Peeta, why do you think that you can fix it all for her just because you're together? Yeah. Are you assuming that because you're together, everything's going to be fine again? Like, I I, I might just be going off on Peeta because I have just this, you know, deep disappointment in men (laughs) in general. But like,
0: it just... No, I think you're right. He really takes advantage of that in the next book when he comforts her when she wakes up screaming. Yeah. It's like... You are part of the traumatic experience. You know that, right?
1: Yeah.
0: And yet you're trying to be the comfort in that. and That may
1: or may not work. And you can't get offended when it doesn't work. Right. And you can't get offended
0: when somebody gets upset at something that you did. Yeah. You just have to recognize it, decide if you want to change that, and move on.
1: Yeah, that's why you can't just say, it wasn't my intention to hurt you. Right. You have to add something along the lines of, it It wasn't my intention to hurt you, but I see that it has, so how can I fix it?
0: Right. Like, even if it wasn't your intention, you still have to be sorry for it, because it's, it's also the effect, not just the intention.
1: All those people who are like, I voted for Trump, but I don't agree with everything he says. Mm, yeah, well, your intention may not have been to put black people in jail and kill all the gay people, but you know what? It just kind of sounded like it was, so... Yeah. You still have to be sorry.
0: Things are too big to ignore. You can't just go back to being friends with liberal people because you know who's going to take you back? Moderates. Moderates. And we don't have to talk about any more of that. No, let's not because I'm going to, I'll go off. Yeah. All right. So that's chapter 27. That's the book. That's the book. Fuck. We read the whole Hunger Games. Read the whole Hunger Games.
1: It only took us a year. What was it? A year and a half? Or no, a year.
0: About a year. Yeah. About a year. <laughs> it's on average taking us about a year per season. Yeah. Because we end up taking breaks in the middle. Mm-hmm. Either because um, we're mad at each other or because <laughs> one of us has a mental health crisis. Uh, um, who's going to be next? Yeah, what's it going to be next? Uh, um,
1: don't, let's not go. Uh, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. What's going to be next? Grad school?
0: I mean, that could be it. That could be it. Yeah.
1: I would accept grad school. That's Mm. a nice outside third-party force that I would be okay with. (laughs) Oh,
0: God. Anyway, final thoughts on The Hunger Games. It's too real
1: for real life. After everything that's happened, it's it's hitting differently. Go back and reread it if you haven't read it in a while, because it's hitting differently.
0: Yeah, because this, when was this published? Was it like right before Obama was president? Let me look. Well, I have the book right here. I can just look at the copyright page.
1: Oh, see? That's why we don't need
0: internet. Yeah, you don't need internet when you have books. Now I just need light. 2008. So it was written right before the Obama era. Yeah. And right before smartphones became a thing right before the iPhone right. or right after the iPhone I think the iPhone was 2007 I learned all this in library school and I've forgotten it all time
1: has become irrelevant yep
0: what is time Very um nice. but I mean back then this might have been a commentary on the Bush presidency oh yeah um with the Iraq war and all that
1: all right so let's read it again and think about only the Bush presidency and the Iraq war and nine eleven. okay cool yeah that'll be our
0: third season
1: <sighs> That sounds exhausting.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it hits similarly, but I I think that that's what makes it such a good dystopia, is mm. that it hits similarly in our age of the Trump presidency, but it also is scary in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it hit back
1: then, it hits now, it very well may hit in the future.
0: Yes, and that is, to me, what a good dystopia does. Is It speaks to the present moment and it speaks to I mean, history repeats itself.
1: Yeah. Which is why my personal stance is, if anyone wants to be a politician, they have to be well-versed in history. Thank you. That is my soapbox
0: for I mean, yes, that would be ideal. Why? Why not? (sighs) I mean, fucking elected an econ major. An econ major, you guys. Ugh. It's fine. It's
1: fine. So much work to do. Let's
0: Let's do it. Yes, lots of work to do. First lady has a PhD in education. We're on our way to being okay now. Still a lot of work to be done.
1: It's an uphill battle, but we're
0: going to keep climbing. Yeah. But last words on the Hunger Games. Good job, Suzanne.
1: But also, why, Suzanne? Why? Why did you drop the ball so bad?
0: About the Hunger Games. Good job, Suzanne. (laughs) (laughs) We won't talk about anything else. Yeah,
1: good job, Suzanne would love to hear your thoughts now. If anyone has any thoughts that they want to share with us, not that anyone ever talks to us, but if you want to share your thoughts with us, feel free to hit us up on Twitter, email us, send us a letter. I don't know. Also, Suzanne Collins, if you hear this, I would really love to know what you would change about The Hunger Games now that it's been over 10 years since it was first written um, and just how things have changed and how your perspectives have changed. That would be really cool. Gosh, yeah. I, get, I think that's it. That's The Hunger Games. Yeah. There's so much that we could go into and yet here we are
0: yeah i didn't uh find any fan fictions for this one but if you want to read my fan fiction from high school um hit hit us up at do it for the vamps at gmail.com i don't know if i still have my hunger games fan fiction though okay we will find something i know i have all two and a half books of my harry potter fan fiction but I don't know if my Hunger Games fanfiction is in the same document.
1: Let's do some research. We'll bring it back for that uh, bonus episode, whenever that is.
0: Yeah, we could find good Ballad, Song of Ears, and Snakes fanfiction slash alternative canon. Please.
1: Alrighty. Well, I hear a dog that desperately wants to be let out of his kennel, so he can probably eat something that he's not supposed to.
0: Yes. Croissant?
1: Croissant. I think that's good. Guys, if you have any comments or any suggestions for our next book, or if you want really just tell us anything at all ever, reach out and we will
0: do our best. Yeah, you can contact contact us on Twitter at uh, Let's Unpack Pod. Forgot that for a second. <laughs> Email us at doitforthevamps at gmail.com. Listen all over. We're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, CastBox, whatever your favorite podcatcher is, and we will see you in,
1: uh, could we do it in two weeks? Uh, I think that's up to you, babe.
0: Either two or four weeks. Or months. For the bonus episode about Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes.
1: Coming to you soon at an undetermined time.
0: Yes, until TBD. then. TBD. And for the last time, let's let's get get this bread. bread. All right. Bye. Bye.